you cut out anything that's not extremely productive or extremely pleasurable. Welcome back to The Author Biz. I'm Stephen Campbell, and this is the show where we discuss meaningful ways to get better results from your author business. Today's show is about plate spinning, sort of. If you're old enough, you may remember seeing those marvelous plate spinners on The Ed Sullivan Show, those talented people who would put plates on the top of poles, get them spinning, and keep them spinning while doing things like balancing themselves on balls. And they do this on live television, so if they failed, they failed in front of an enormous audience because The Ed Sullivan Show was really big back in the day. If you don't remember, I've posted a video in the show notes, so take a look and tell me if you've ever felt that way while trying to figure out how to keep all the plates in your life spinning. The writing plate, the marketing plate, the family plate, the friends plate, the rest and relaxation plates, and for a lot of us, the career plate. It's really easy to get trapped into the urgency of the moment. We all do it. Most of us do it every day. We've got deadlines, family obligations, jobs, bills, blog posts to write, social media to keep up with, and every so often we have to take some time off to recharge the old batteries, right? Well, I've wanted to do a show on this topic for months now, and I've had today's guest, author Melissa Ewan Innes, in mind for this show since I first spoke with her on CrimeFiction.fm. At that time, she was promoting the latest book in her Hope C Medical Mystery series, and C is spelled S-Z-E. Melissa, who writes fiction under the pseudonym Melissa Yee, is a hybrid author who writes both fiction and nonfiction. She's also a wife, a mother, a blogger, and a physician. As you'll hear during the interview, Melissa is one of those people who are really able to focus in on the important stuff which she does creatively and with great purpose. In this episode, we discuss how she keeps all of her plates spinning, as well as her unusual ideas for social media and her mindset when it comes to promoting her books. One last thing. Okay, actually two before we get to the interview. The first is that, as you know, I don't usually have sponsors for this show. But I do have the opportunity to give shout-outs to people that I see doing great work for authors. One of those is my editor, Kimberly Grenfell. Kim was recommended to me by an author friend, Logan Keyes, a couple of years ago. And since I was looking for an editor at the time, I decided to try working with Kim. As a listener to this show, you know that editors come in all price ranges, from the super expensive types who used to work at the big five publishers to the super cheap, for whom editing is is really nothing more than glorified proofreading. My experience with Kim, which has been validated by friends in the traditional publishing world, is that she's at the lower end of the pricing schedule while still providing top-notch professional quality work. If you don't already have an editor, or if you're looking for someone who might be a little more budget-friendly, I'm going to suggest that you reach out to Kim, who offers everything from manuscript evaluations, and I I will admit I've never used her to do an evaluation of a manuscript, Uh, But she does everything else. She does content editing, line editing, and proofreading, all of which I have used Kim for. I've already got her scheduled for what she calls her Novel A package, which includes that content editing, followed by line editing and proofreading for my next book, Reno's Debt. 
What's the cost of that package, you may be asking yourself? The posted fee as listed on the rates section of Kim's website is $540. Her website is goldenstandardediting.blogspot.com or you can just go to theauthorbiz.com slash editing, which will forward you to that website. You can also reach her via email at devon, D-E-V-O-N, at, I'm, I'm not even going to say this, I'll just spell it, C-A-E-N-D-O-R-I-A dot com. So that's devon at C-A-E-N-D-O-R-I-A dot com. Or if you're in the AuthorBiz Facebook group, you can find her there as well. I will post the link to her website in the show notes. As you'll see on Kim's rates page, she offers a 10% discount to clients who refer new clients, which is what I'm doing here. So if you do reach out to Kim for editing work, please let her know where you heard about Golden Standard Editing. And if you do decide to use her services and you're as happy with the work as I've been, you can get your own 10% discount on your next job by referring someone yourself. All right, one last thing. Really, this is the last thing before we get to today's interview. Something went seriously wrong with my microphone while Melissa and I recorded this interview a few weeks ago. You can hear me in my questions, but it doesn't sound anything like it usually sounds or like I sound right now. Fortunately, Melissa, who shares the important information during the interview, sounds great. It's just me, after 300-plus podcasts having a microphone failure, for which I'm sorry. But bear with us because Melissa delivers some great insights during the show. All right, as usual, show notes at theauthorbiz.com will have links to everything we mentioned during the show. Melissa, you and Innes, welcome to The Author Biz. Thank you very much, Stephen Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we are off to a good start. As a little bit of background, before we get into the interview, you and I did an interview for CrimeFiction.fm, and, and we were reminiscing about that interview before I turned the recorder on. And I had mentioned that it took a while for us to get that first laugh in that interview, so we are way ahead of schedule in this one. <laughs> Bang. Bang. All right, so we are going to talk about essentially doing it all in life. You know, this, this thing that we all want to be able to do. We want to be able to write and, and run our author businesses and do the work that we have to do and manage our families and blah dee da dee da all this stuff that none of us have enough time to do. And I've been thinking about doing this show for a while, and I was thinking, who would be a good guest? And... As, as a little bit of background for you and, and why I think that you'll be a good guest for this show, you are a wife, a mother, you're an author. Your author page on Amazon is seven pages long. <laughs> you, you market yourself well. You market your books well. You, you, your email pitch to be on CrimeFiction.fm was the single best email pitch I ever had. So oh. you're, you're good at that. You blog on your own site. You blog on other sites. Uh, you seem to turn up on television from time to time because I see that on your social media accounts. And then there's this side job that you have. That Oh, that's right. You're, uh, you're a doctor, and you work at uh, an emergency room doctor, and you work at three different hospitals in Canada. That's correct. So it's like, who better to talk to than Melissa? About this, and you go. Your uh, your pseudonym for your fiction is Melissa Yi. Y I 
And you write a mystery series called the Hope Z Medical Mystery Series that I really enjoy. It's um, the, the most recent book is Stockholm Syndrome. That's what we did our first interview about. Really a fun book, a really a fun series. You've written a bunch of short stories, and there's all kinds of stuff that we're going to get into during the interview. But uh, let, let's get started with uh, the main topic today. What's, what's, what's the secret? And the, the floor is yours for the next 45 minutes. Go ahead. Okay. Well, I'm going <laughs> in very closely because I'm going to tell you. I, well, one of the things is that one of the mothers in medicine, how she put it was, you have to marry well. So you've got to have a good team on your side. You don't have to actually get married. You don't have to be heterosexual. But you have to have the right people in your corner because otherwise you're not going to make it. It's going to, like, if you want to do well, you have to have a team. And so for me, um, I picked out my guy in high school, so we've been doing well ever since. And other lucky people have, like, grandparents and stuff who can pitch in. Highly recommended. And if not, like, you just have to hire people like a nanny or a housekeeper. Yes. Okay, so that's one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and another one is, because I was just thinking about this, I actually write for the Medical Post. I, they of course actually, you do. <laughs> they're villains columnists. So I, before I came on this show, that's what I was writing as part of my thousand words for the day. So my first one would, my, I said, number one, delegate. So that's having the good team around you. Um, number two is downtime because you just can't produce all the time. I did burn out uh, around Christmas time. So I want to, I don't want people to think that I'm a superhero or anything like that. And just build in some downtime into your schedule. And the third one I said was dispose. So uh, Jen Desura, who's this great author blogger on GetBullish.com, she says, you cut out anything that's not extremely productive or extremely pleasurable. So anything that's kind of in between, that's just sort of like you're not doing for any good reason or you're just doing it because people want you to and you want to be the good guy, you know, time to say no. And the fourth thing I said was to dream, because especially in medicine, you just get so caught up uh, with your day job, and you could work literally 24 hours a day, and you would make money, and people would tell you how cool you are, um, but you just don't end up valuing yourself as a person, like you're just a role. So I tell them that it's okay not just to be a doctor, like to think about other things and to look stupid even. Like I hadn't gotten around to writing that part, but I was going to say just to do things for the joy of it, that there's no, um, you don't sell any books because of it, but just because you want to do it. Like if you want to dance and look like an idiot, then you get to do that. And I, I know that in your case, you, and, and, and I, I mean this in the best possible way, there are a lot of funny pictures of you on your on your Facebook page where it'll be like you and your kids and you're making these faces or you're doing these fun things. And so, yeah, you, you really buy into this, it's okay to make a fool of yourself kind of thing. Well, you know what I thought was really interesting is if I go on Facebook, so, you know, there are all these people who try to make themselves look the most perfect. Mm -hmm. And the children, you know, when they post pictures of their kids, they're all dressed up and they're on this cloud of white, you know, <laughs> you know, and you know, and people like that, you know, especially the, the first few pictures of your kid. And then it's just, your kid looks exactly the same all the time. And your book looks exactly the same all the time. Whereas my friend Becky picked up my phone when, when a bunch of us went out to dinner and she just took the most 
horrendous photos of herself, like mouth open, looked like she was drooling, you know, and I put, and I was like, do you want me to post this? And she's like, yeah. And I said, really? Like, you want me to tag you and everything? Because women especially, you know, want to look perfect. And she's like, yeah. Like, she's a teacher. She's like, when I go out at, like, running events and stuff like that, I try to take the most disgusting pictures of the kids. And they're all like, no, miss, no. But then she posts them, and they think they're the most hilarious thing. And her picture got a hugely strong reaction on my timeline. So, you know, all like, because everybody posts pictures of themselves wearing a little black dress, but no one puts pictures of themselves looking like the town idiot. And I was like, all right. I was like, I like, that's something, that's one way to stand out, right? So then it, so like, <laughs> I think you can use that, to be honest. And I have to say, I'll just, around the same time on my timeline, I also posted an article that I thought was interesting, which was on vaginal knitting. Um, <laughs> like this woman. Just don't expect any questions from me on this. Hey, no, no, I'll just, I'll just put this out there. Like, you know, I didn't think it was that big a deal. Like, it was just a woman who liked to knit. And, like, instead of keeping the, the ball of yarn in her lap, she thought that there was another more convenient place to put it for her. <laughs> and that also got an enormous reaction on my timeline. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I guess that's part of the way that I am and the way that I write as well. Like, I don't want to see the same things. Like, you know, when on Facebook, they will be like, you know, five people shared the exact same thing that this radio station put out. And that's fine. Like, they obviously did a good job on it. But I don't find it interesting, and I usually won't comment on it very much. But if someone puts something different, yeah, that, that gets my attention. You said something when you were going through your list of D's for this article that, that you're in the process of writing now that, that really resonated with me. As, as someone who tries to be as productive as humanly possible, we all read this stuff about, you know, just eliminate everything but what's really productive in your life. And, and, and you expand it beyond that. You know, just eliminate everything beyond what's extremely productive or extremely pleasurable. So, you know, avoid those eh, slightly pleasurable, time-wasting kind of things. But if you're going to do something, make it really good. Yeah, and if you want to do the time-wasting stuff, like, you know, in, in the article I mentioned, the Try Guys on BuzzFeed, then do it with your whole heart. You know, just feel like, yes, I get this time, and this is my time, and I really enjoy it. Instead of just sort of this slothful um, hours of, uh, you know, just that ebb by without you noticing them. All right, you also said that you're doing this as a part of your 1,000 words a day. So that, that obviously must be a part of your process. Do you, you, you try and write 1,000 words every day? Well, I write 1,000 words a day if I'm not working in the emergency room. And then if I am working in the emergency room, then I try and write 500 words a day. Okay. And that's everything. That's uh, blogging, your books, everything. Um. I've, I've tried to become more relaxed about it. So uh, if I am tired, then that's everything. If, it, if I'm not as tired, then it's just fiction, and the other stuff doesn't count. But, for example, I'm working tomorrow, so I figured if I did 1,000 words on this article and I put 500 words into my fiction, then I cover today and tomorrow, and I don't have to worry about getting up early and trying to put the words in before rousing my children and getting them dressed, etc., what, what is your normal schedule? Say it's, say it's a normal week. Uh, are, are you a morning writer, an afternoon writer, a wedge it in wherever you can writer? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm more wedged in whenever you can. So I know there are some people who are like, I always get up and I do A and I do B and I do C. Mm-hmm. I'm not like that. If I can get my writing done first thing, then it's great because then I can just goof off for the rest of the day and I really enjoy that. But if I don't, uh, it's usually because I'm tired and just my brain's not firing. So I might, and if I'm stiff or something, I might decide I want to do yoga first before I write. And if I just end up procrastinating too long, then my kids wake up and start jumping on me, and then it's game over until I get them on the school bus. All right. Now, you, you mentioned yoga, and I'm, I'm flashing back on, on a, a story that I'll tell very quickly. It was a few years ago. I read something by you, but I had no idea it was by you when I was talking, uh, when I first talked to you. Or maybe it was when I was doing the research I, I found out. But I, I read this story in one of the mystery um, uh, magazines, Alfred Hitchcock or Ellery Queen, I can't remember which. But it was a yoga-type murder mystery. And it, it really stuck in my mind. It was a great story. It stuck in my mind. And then all of a sudden we're talking and it's like, oh, that was you. <laughs> that, that was really cool because I thought I'd never read anything of yours other than the Hope C stuff. And... There was this short story. You write a lot of short fiction, don't you? Yeah. Um, that's partly because I go to Chris and Dean's workshops. Chris, Christine Catherine Rush and Dean Wesley Smith. Mm-hmm. And um, when you go there, you often write short stories. And I started off in short stories, actually, before I met them, so I can't credit them completely. But I really think that it's a good way to cut your teeth as a writer, especially if you have a busy day job. Did you go this past year? Trying to remember because things get hazy. I don't think so, but I went to, I uh, was one of the finalists for the Roswell Award for short science fiction. So I flew to LA last month. Okay, that, you, you mentioned science fiction. And in all of this, you know, in going through the seven pages of things that, that you have written, it's a little bit of everything. I think I saw something called Fifty Shades of Grey's Anatomy. You did. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you write, you know, the Hope C series. Um, there are just all kinds of things with really interesting titles that are just all over the place. How do you decide what you're going to do? Is it just, you know, does the muse strike you, or is it I'm writing the series, so I'm going to keep writing the series kind of thing? How do, how do you make those business decisions or business slash artistic decisions? Well, I like money, so that does it. I guess right from the beginning. So when I first started writing, I was looking at short stories, and my husband, like my boyfriend at the time, was like, look at these science fiction magazines. They publish short stories. And I wanted to have a paying market. I didn't want to write for literary magazines that you know would pay in copies. So I uh, started writing science fiction and fantasy. And I was one of the winners for Writers of the Future, which is one of the best paying ones because the top prize every quarter is $1,000 and second prize is seven fifty, and third prize is 500 And then at the end of the year, they'll fly all the quarterly winners and a few of the finalists uh, to Los Angeles and give them a week-long workshop and then cap it off with uh, the unveiling of the anthology. And they pay you separately for the anthology as well. It might have been... 35 cents a word or something like it was a good pay rate. Mm-hmm. So that, that made me write science fiction and fantasy. And then 
my best-selling thing on Amazon was a collection of my medical post-essays called The Most Unfeeling Doctor in the World and Other True Tales from the Emergency Room, which was a collection of essays that I'd written from the medical post. And I was surprised by the reaction, to be honest, um, both good and bad. I was surprised because I was happy that I was making money on columns that I'd already written. And I was also taken aback by the one-star reviews that I got, um, which was harsh. And in fact, I stopped writing nonfiction for a little bit after reading some of those reviews. Because I couldn't believe that just writing something lighthearted about the emergency room would get people so riled up. Like one of them said, she wished that she could burn my book. <laughs> wow. it, was a, it was an e-book, so she <laughs> couldn't burn it. Which made her even madder, I think. You know, like, it, I was a, a bit gobsmacked. So I had to work through that, too. But afterwards, I was like, wow, nonfiction. My like, part of the reason that I had published the nonfiction was because I looked at a chart from Sourcebooks, and a good chunk of the revenue came from nonfiction. And I was like, oh, people seem to be willing to take more of a chance on nonfiction. Uh, you know, they want to know what it's like to be in the emergency room. They're not willing to gamble on an unknown novel, but they'll, they, maybe they'll read some essays. And in fact, that turned out that they would. So that's why I wrote that whole series, um, which is The Most Unfeeling Doctor in the World, Fifty Shades of Grey's Anatomy, Broken Bones, which is inspired by uh, Breaking Bad, and stuff like that. Um, and once those started selling well, I was like, well, I hope that I'll get crossover to the Hope C mystery, like medical mysteries. And in fact, at the beginning, when I was charting the crossover, it was like about 10% of people would cross from the nonfiction to the fiction. And how did you know that? How did, how did you find that out? Uh, I just looked at this. <laughs> I just looked at the sales and how many sales I was getting and... Uh, like this number sold per month. Okay. Yeah, and then I, I I just remember calculating that, and then I would calculate. Then, like I at the time I had two books fairly close together: the first whole book, Cold Blues, and the second one, Notorious DOC. And it seemed like so I wasn't getting that good crossover, like ten percent. But then the people who bought the first book, fifty percent of them would go on to buy the second book. So it was the uptake was pretty good once they got mm -hmm. into. Now, I, I know from the last time we talked that when you wrote uh, Stockholm Syndrome, or when you published Stockholm Syndrome, it was, uh, you had some sort of a special thing going on at Kobo. You're in Canada, and uh, you're, you're obviously not just uh, an Amazon-only, you're not an Amazon-only author, you're, you go wide. Uh, how, did, how did that promotion work for you at Kobo? First, what was it, and how did it work for you? Well, Kobo is great in that if you have something free and it's a sale, it counts the same as if you if someone has paid money. Um, Amazon used to be like that, and they're not like that anymore. So what I did was I talked to them and asked them to create a coupon for me, which they did just for one month, that if people downloaded it, they could get it for free using a certain code. And then what I did was then approach CBC Radio, which is like our NPR, the National Public Radio, and ask them, like, and then just pitch myself, like, what I had done for Crime Fiction FM, right? And I got on, I had previously been on Ontario Morning, and then I got on Fresh Air, which was like a provincial 
morning show. And uh, they interviewed me during the promotion. So that was the key. I had to get the interview during the first month and, and have all the downloads at the same time. And with that, I was able to hit the Kobo bestseller list. And then once you're on the bestseller list, you know, you get more visibility. And then people who don't have the code, the idea is they also download the book. Was there a limited number of uh, freebies that the, the code was good for? They didn't limit the number of freebies. They limited it by time. Okay. So, yeah, it was one month, and after that, the code wasn't good anymore. Okay. Now, I want to dig into all, all, all that you just said a little bit because you, you kind of glossed over some stuff that, that's really important. And it, just the idea, I, I'd like to understand your mindset in, in putting all this together. Um, because it, it's not the kind of thing that most of us will do. You know, we might have a a marketing plan, the same marketing plan that we've seen twenty of our friends do for a book. Uh, yours is yours is different. You know, you went to Kobo. You actually talked to a person at Kobo and got sort of a customized plan put together, and then you started contacting media outlets to to drum up attention. During this period of time, what was your thinking for all of that? What what caused you to kind of break out of what the rest of us are doing to try something different? It all started pretty organically for me. So I won a contest on Kobo. You know, they're good about sponsoring contests. And that was just random. Um, I randomly won a professional cover from them. So I said, I'd like you to, I'd like to use that for my third hope book. And they said, fine. So they did that. And then I ended up meeting Mark Leslie Lefebvre, who goes to a lot of different conferences. And I was like, is there anything else that Kobo can do for me? And he said, sure, let's talk. <laughs> and they're in Toronto, which is about five hours drive for me, maybe six hours, depending on the weather. Now, let me, let me interrupt you here. What, what about your conversation with Mark made you feel like, that was the right approach to say, is there anything else that Kobo can do for me? Because that's, again, not the approach that most of us would take. I might have put it in a more tactful way. <laughs> but still, you're asking. Yeah, I mean, I think you should, you like, like that's part of the key, right? Don't be afraid to ask. If he said no, then, then it was a no. And I mean, there are plenty of people who were approaching him at the conference, which was really small, like maybe 20 writers he you know it was hard for us to meet because there were so many people around him but he was and he had and I guess the lucky thing again to tie back the short fiction was he had bought one of my short stories for one of one of his anthologies but still it was the same person because uh you know because of my different last names and stuff my different pseudonyms but when one of the other authors who was there was like oh he's my editor and I'm like for which anthology and she said tesseracts I think it was 16 that I was in. I was, I was in two different ones. And he, and I was like, oh, because he also uses different last names. He uses Mark Lefebvre at Kobo and he uses Mark Leslie when he's a writer and mm -hmm. an editor, just by the way. So putting the, the pieces together, I was like, okay, I sort of know him. Okay. <laughs> Maybe he can do something else for me. And if he can't, then that's okay. You know, I'll, I'll just try other stuff. So... Um, they did other things too, like another um, Kobo person, Jody White, came out for another um, book festival that we had in Cornwall. But then for Terminally Ill, which is the third Hope book, I wanted to do something different, just for fun, just for me. And in that book, 
it centers around this escape artist who wants to be chained and nailed into a coffin and then dropped into the St. Lawrence River on Halloween in honor of Houdini. But the problem is that uh, he never manages to break free and basically drowns in the coffin. And Hope is the one who has to resuscitate him. And then he wants her to figure out who sabotaged his stunt. And my problem was that I wanted somebody to get in a coffin and for me to resuscitate them. (laughs) And no one would do it. Like, I couldn't believe it. My husband didn't want to do it. You know, I I wanted a guy because it's inspired by Dean Gunnarsson, who's a real estate artist from Canada, who did this in Winnipeg. And the whole bit, like, he, he wasn't... He basically drowned in the coffin. He was pulseless. They had to drag him out and and uh, give him oxygen CPR. And he came back, and he's totally fine now, and he gave me permission to use that story. But I was like, I want someone in the coffin. And I was actually even contacting like somebody at a funeral home and asking how much it would be to have a coffin and all this stuff. It's too expensive, by the way, so I didn't do that. And um, Mark was willing to do it. <laughs> so, and it was a blizzard. It was March, but you know, the crazy weather we've been having, he, he had to drive uh, just ahead of the blizzard to make it. And then people had to come through the blizzard to come to the book launch. But it was great because he had acting experience. Like he had no problem being chained up. Uh, the, the guy in the book is an Elvis impersonator. So he had like Elvis hair and shirt and the whole bit. And he really went full hog. And one of the newspapers, the Standard Freeholder, came to one of the book launches and took photos. So at CBC Radio, one of the producers of Ontario Morning reads the newspapers, the local newspapers, just to look for ideas. And he saw that, and it was so bizarre, he contacted me to ask if I would come on their show. And so that, that's where it grew from. So then for my, So that was for the third book. So for the fourth book... I knew that producer, I asked, could I be on Ontario Morning again? And he said, maybe you should try for fresh air this time. And I was like, okay. And with the same way with the coupon, which Mark had encouraged me to do, like I wasn't a big fan of giving away my books for free, even though I know other people have done it successfully. And he was like, oh, this is really bothering you, isn't it? Uh, but this is actually the best thing for you. If you could give away a thousand books on Kobo, that would be the best thing that could ever happen to you. So him coming down and spending time with me was a gift. You know, basically we went out to lunch afterwards and, you know, it was like a private tutorial on how to market things because he used to be um, like an advisor to booksellers in Canada and stuff like that before he went to Kobo. And so I got over my fear of free. (laughs) I knew how to make it work with the coupon for Terminally Ill. So then when the fourth book came out, I knew that I could use the coupon, but I had to get that media exposure because... I live in a rural area where a lot of people may not be as computer savvy as in urban areas. So they'd be like, well, I tried to use the coupon and I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I didn't download it. Like, like I get that all the time. Uh, but the people on CBC didn't, ask, most of them didn't ask me. They just figured out how to download it and they were fine. And they all downloaded it on the same day after hearing the show. If you just have a few people downloading this day and a few people downloading that day, it doesn't give you the heat that you need to hit, hit the national bestseller list. You have to have them all downloading at once and skyrocket up, and that's how you hit the bestseller list. All right. In, in talking to you about this, in my mind, I feel like I'm talking to a full-time author, someone that, that you know maybe has a family and a husband 
and spends the rest of her time writing and running her author business. And it, I, I'm having a hard time connecting that with, with the medical work you do and, and understanding how you, have the t- how you have the time to do all of this stuff. So how do you segment your time to... We, we know you try and write 1,000 or 500 words a day. Do you also try and do some form of book marketing every day, or, or do you just sort of get involved in a project and, and see where it takes you? Okay, so the promotion I do find tiring, and you make sacrifices. Like, for example, we talked about short fiction. I have not sent out a short story to any magazine in uh, maybe months, which is really horrible. So because if I'm trying to market the my novels, then I just or my other books, because I also have a back pain book, then I just don't think about uh, the short stories. So you can't do everything. That's one thing. So it's only if I have enough energy, like if I'm not working in the emergency room, I also did hospitalist work, which just means that you're in, with the inpatients all the time. I do have to compartmentalize myself. So if I'm working, I'm working. And if I'm not working, I, I put the priority into making new words. And if I have any extra energy, then I will, then I will promote myself. You know, that could be as simple as just sending like, a review copy out or something like that. Is it, is it the kind of thing where you just have to shut off everything in your mind? Like you know, everything that you do, or not everything, but a, a lot of what you do requires intense focus. You know, if you're writing, that requires intense focus. I, I'm assuming that you're intensely focused at the emergency room. Um, how, do you, is, how do you shut off the rest of the world so that you can focus for these brief periods of time when you have the time to do either writing or book promotion or, you know, whatever it, it may need to be. You know, maybe it's cover design, maybe it's book formatting, you know, all, all the different things that go into running an author business. Well, I mean, I think we're all born with a certain amount of talents. I'm pretty good at focusing and I try to just target when I need to. So writing, I do usually need to focus. So that means if I have enough willpower to turn off the internet, that helps enormously, right? Um, how do you do that? How do you turn off the internet? Oh, I just, like on the Mac, you know, there's got those little Wi-Fi signals, so I just turn off the Wi-Fi. Yeah, but you can turn it back on. Are you, are you that disciplined that you don't? I mean, if you're very dedicated, like what Chris and Dean say to do, is just have a writing computer that has no internet. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic idea that, that they have, and I, I wish I had one of those, but I don't. <laughs> Yeah, and then, but for me, because I don't write that much every day, it's not that big a deal. Like, if I focus, I could get it done in half an hour or an hour, right? So you only have to be, quote-unquote, good for that amount of time, and then you can just fool around. Like, for sure, if I'm doing book promotion, I'll have a podcast or music or something on in the background, because I don't have to concentrate for that. I probably, you know, make more grammatical errors or something, <laughs> you know, but I, I don't have to think that that's strongly for those things. And then in the emergency room, I have to say what other people have commented, like nurses and even other doctors, sometimes they'll talk to their families, you know, like just when they're on a break or something. And I almost never do like not even texting. Like I just, I am, I am in the emergency room and I don't like, and that, that, that is all. Um, so if it's an emergency, yes, I will. But otherwise uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just working. 
And is, is your, I, I'm assuming that your family is supportive of all this. So if you go into the writing cave, I don't, I don't know where you write, but you know, wherever it is to write, does your family know, hey, let's not bother mom now because she's writing? Or is, is that okay as well? Well, my husband knows. He's very good about that sort of thing. But my children know. And so I've tried to train them. Like, so, for example, on Scrivener, you set a goal. So, and you can see visually, like, when you hit your goal, like, like it goes from red, you have hardly read, written anything, to, you know, yellow and then orange and then green and when you're done. And it'll actually go bing mm-hmm. when you reach your goal. And so when my daughter was very small, I would just show her that. And I'd be like, well, mommy isn't green yet, so mommy can't play yet. Um, and it didn't help that much. It helped a little bit. And my son will try. Like, he likes to be like, can I just write something? And he usually writes something like, I love you, mommy, or something. You know? And I'll say, that's good, Max. And then I'll move it to a different part of the document so I don't count his words as part of the words that I'm doing. <laughs> and then I'll keep on writing. So from a production standpoint... Um, other than the thousand words a day, do you, do you have like a production plan? Like I, I want to release two short stories, uh, a novel and a, a nonfiction book next year. Do, do you have plans like that? Or do you just keep writing your thousand words a day and whatever happens, happens? Yeah, that's me, which is really, you know, not what they advise. Like you're supposed to do exactly what you say, like plan in advance and then that makes means that you have deadlines and it means that your fans can count on you and that they know they can anticipate you know a reno heart book every october or something like that i love the way you threw that in thank you (laughs) (laughs) and and uh, you know and i really admire people who do that but I don't know. I feel like life, you know, my life is messy enough that I try, and I usually will do a hope book a year. So people are glad, and then if I don't, then they wait. You know, I mean, there is a there is at least one nurse who every time I see her, almost she'll say, "So what's happening with the next hope book?" You know, she'll bug me. But it was good. Like it was a kick in the pants for me because I had put it aside while I was working on my back pain book. I'm like, "Well, I'm doing back pain," and she sure didn't care about that. You know. <laughs> Well, let's, let's talk about that back pain book for a minute. We did an episode on the Author Biz a few weeks ago about taking care of yourself as a doctor, or as a doctor, as an author, uh, because we know doctors don't take care of themselves. True, true. But um, as, as authors, we spend a lot of time in our chairs, and you know, I, I, I talk to people all the time who feel as though their, their health is deteriorating because of all the time they spend in the chair. So that was a fun episode to do with uh, Colleen Story, who's sort of a health person. And it got me back to running and really inspired me. But one of the things that I found as my health was deteriorating was that my back was the number one sign that I'm spending too much time in the chair. So I suspect there are a lot of us out there listening to this that have back issues. So... What should we do? Well, stand up and change positions all the time is one of the more basic things you can do. And you, it's really, the money is an exercise in education. So they recently did a meta-analysis of 31,000 um, people total. And what they found was to prevent back pain by about 30%, you have to learn more about your back and 
stay active. That, you know, so that's what the emergency doctor's guide to a pain-free back is really about. Um, and I sympathize because, you know, after I've worked for 12 hours, I don't feel like standing up. You know, I do weird things sometimes, like I'm kneeling or I'm doing stuff because I don't want to be on my feet anymore. But if I haven't been working all the time, then what I'll do is, like, I just have my computer on a dresser so I can stand up while I'm writing. And then I can just pull out one of the bottom drawers and put my foot up on one of them and alternate which foot I'm doing. I notice in, in the promotional images that I've seen for the, your back pain book, you're always doing these weird things with your leg. What is that about? Uh, well, again, it's just about drawing attention. I could just be standing there with a back pain book, which is fine. But I thought if, if I only have, you know, 0.2 seconds of someone's attention, then I just want to be able to show them what the book is about in that image. So it's usually just me with my leg up on something or, you know, I <laughs> had my friends doing plank pose and stuff and I plop <laughs> the book on top of their bodies and stuff like that. And it's, again, it's just for fun. Because most people, you know, if you're, I, 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 this is one of the bad things I do. I don't have a separate Facebook page for myself and my books. So a lot of what I do on Facebook is about my writing, just because otherwise I, I can't be bothered to go on Facebook. So <laughs> I have to make it entertaining for people, because otherwise, you know, they're not going to like your stuff, because you, they already know you have that book out. They're your friends, and they already liked it a month ago and it hasn't changed since then so if you can just make it fun with an image then i suggest doing that all right well i have seen pictures of you online and you know some odd pictures but i i know from seeing those pictures that you're around 23 <laughs> so if, if if you could tell your and i'm kidding a little bit but if you could tell your younger self something about time management that you know now that you didn't know then, what would it be? Hmm. Um, you know, I don't give myself that. I don't think of myself that way because I honestly, I would just tell myself that everything's going to be okay. Because we waste a lot of time worrying. You know, in Buddhism, that's one of the hindrances is fretting. Uh, at least I do. You know, I, I have a family full of worriers. So... One of the best things you can do is just cut that, like when you're cutting things out, like to cut out that worry time. So if I could just somehow reassure myself that I don't have to, uh, you know, if I could just tell myself, hey, it's all right, you're going to hit the Kobo bestseller list. You're going to be on national radio. People are going to know who you are. Um, then that would eliminate a lot of time, that I, like a lot of energy that I had spent otherwise. You know, it's interesting. I just turned 60 uh, last week. And I, I was, thank you. I, I was thinking about, you know, as you do when you have these rollover birthdays, you think about things that maybe you've learned in hopes that you have learned something. And that was the, the number one thing that popped into my mind is that somewhere around like 35, I realized that everything was going to be okay and the whole worrying thing was just complete wasted time. That's really good advice. Okay, that's really cool. Um, I guess that's what people think of as wisdom. So if you hit that at 35, I'd say that's pretty good. Yeah, I, I wasn't smart enough to realize that it was uh, anything important back then, but I, I did. I was so busy back then that there really just wasn't time for worry. For me, I worried a lot about uh, having children. It was a struggle uh, to have our two babies. 
So if I'd known that that part was going to work out, I would have been much more relaxed. What do you do when, when a negative thought rolls into your head that, that for some people they might think to themselves, wow, I need to worry about this for a while? How do you get rid of it? Well, I find Buddhism useful, actually. So the idea is not to get rid of a negative thought. For example, like I read the book by the crazy, sexy cancer woman. Do you know who I'm talking about? Like, when I saw that book, I was like, well, I have to read this. Anybody who says crazy, sexy cancer, like, that's my kind of... (laughs) No, I had had not read that one. (laughs) And, uh, you know, it wasn't because I had cancer. I just just like the way people think. So I picked it up, and she said, well, if you ever have a negative thought, you know, you put an elastic band on your wrist, and you snap it, and then that pain will remind you never to have that thought again, sort of thing. And I was like, okay, I would never do that. Because negative thoughts are part of life. Like, we all have them, and sometimes they're useful to have because you want to think about uh, dangers that you can avoid or, uh, you know, correct in the future. But, so, I'm more a Buddhist. Like, you have these negative thoughts, and then you let them go. You know, you, you extract whatever you can from them, and then that's it. My husband is a really good role model in that way in that he really just doesn't get worked up about stuff. So if I'm like, oh, no, did you see this? Mm-hmm. They'll be like, hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which should be infuriating sometimes, but also then I'll just sort of say to myself, oh, I guess it's not that big a deal. Like, for example, I don't watch the news very much or listen to the news very much, but when I did and I heard some of the U.S. political stuff that was going on, I was concerned. And then I got into my head, um that I wanted to sell off my U.S. stocks before the election because I didn't want that kind of instability because I, like, part of my feeling secure is having financial security. Mm -hmm. And so I posted uh, online just to see what people thought about this idea. Um, And they said, like, a lot of them said, just write it out, that the whoever is president doesn't actually affect the U.S. markets that much. So I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet, like if I'm going to sell off my U.S. stocks or not. But for me, that was something that I could do. So instead of worrying about the U.S. election, I can't do anything about it. I can't even vote. I'm not American. I'm Canadian, right? But I can decide whether or not I'm going to sell my U.S. stocks, and that's something that I can control. Well, this has been interesting, and it's always fun to talk to you. you I, I love the way you think about things. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate that. I know not everybody would bring up U.S. politics during a time management author. (laughs) And, you know, the funny thing is, I'm ready to go off on a 20-minute riff on this, and I'm thinking, this is not going to be something that's going to be highly entertaining for our listeners, (laughs) but I would love to talk about it. I would love to talk about it a little bit more. Uh, Melissa, what is the best way for people to keep up with what you're doing online and maybe find out about this back pain book of yours? Uh, if you go to my website, www.melissayuaninnit.com, which is M-E-L-I-S-S-A-Y-U-A-N-I-N-N-E-S.com, then you can find all of my books and how to contact me. And I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. And when you're at her website, click on, I think, your, your button. I think there's a button for portfolio, which I love. And it just brings up all these covers and when I did it this morning I'm like some of those have to be something other than books and I just started clicking around and they're all books or they're all you know they're all covers for things that are published somewhere 
That's right. And actually, it's not complete. I have a bunch of stuff that I still have to import. It's on my to-do list. <laughs> well, Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. I, it's always a pleasure chatting with you. Likewise, Stephen. Thank you.